بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So inshallah ta'ala we're going to start uh, the main part of what we began last week which is الأرجوزة المئية في ذكر حال أشرف البرية صلى الله عليه وعلى وصحبه وسلم so we're starting this poem, Al-Urjuzatul Mi'iyyah, the hundred line poem. Uh, just a couple of like bits of information for you. The poem has been translated into English and we've uploaded the translation onto the Kalima website. So if you go to kalima.org forward slash module three, it's all one word, kalima.org forward slash module three, and then you click on resources, there's a big red button that says resources. And in the last class's resource notes, there is a link that says home assignment. And in there, it has the, the full, uh, I need the poem translated into English. I don't know how good the translation is because uh, yeah, I need, we, we found it on the internet, but it seems to be a, it seems to be a decent translation. It seems to be okay. Poetry is not easy to translate. And the home assignment is also written on there. Uh, and I'll, I will actually read you the home assignment. Your assignment for the third module of the essentials is to memorize as much of Al-Urjuzatul Mi'iyyah in Arabic as possible. You should aim to memorize the whole poem if you are able, but credits will be awarded to all those who make a sincere effort to memorize as much as they can. Now, I know that not all of you are able to memorize a hundred lines. But as long as I see a real effort to memorize in the time you've been given, then inshallah ta'ala that would be sufficient. The emphasis should be on the quality of memorization, not getting to the end of the poem. I'd rather you memorize 50 lines with quality than a hundred lines and without quality. And we've provided an audio recording and a written text. Now there are some slight differences between the audio recording and the written text. And that's quite normal. You know, in, in poetry, you have riwayat, any different ways of reading the same line of poetry. And maybe an expert in poetry would be able to tell you which of the two are better or which of the two are grammatically closer but and for me i'm more than happy for you to memorize either um, the one that is written down or the one that is audio depending on what is easy for you and there is the text of the poem in arabic and the english translation all of these are on that website. So kalima.org forward slash module three, go to resources, go down to the, I think the 10th week or the ninth week or something like that. And it says home assignment, click on there. And the test will be in the first week of January approximately. So I'm not gonna ask you to do it within the next three weeks. I'm gonna give you any a good whatever, I don't know what it will be, five weeks, six weeks, something like that. 
I'm not going to say exactly when the test will be in the first week of January because it might be in the second week, it might be at the end, it might be. But generally, like, be ready by the first week of January. Be ready by the first week of January to have to present what you've, you've memorized. And the memorization is in Arabic, not in English, to be clear. Again, I'll emphasize that if you don't finish all 100 lines, you won't be penalized as long as you did your best to memorize as much as you can. And I'll take into account, you know, the different factors with each student and what I think you're able to do and how much time you've given it. And, but I think it's still possible for the majority of people to finish the poem. I think it's quite possible for the majority of people to finish the poem. If we said, just as an example, if we said five weeks, really it's not like a, it's not a huge amount. You can do three lines in a, a day and you'll be and you're flying, inshallah. And you can do two lines in a day, you'll probably finish most of the poem. So we're going to dip into the English and the Arabic. I'll read you what the Arabic is. I'll read you what the English translation that we gave you is. And then we'll start with the explanation. So the poet, he said, Mawliduhu fi ashiri al-fadili Rabi'in al-awwali amal fili Lakinna al-mashhur thani ashrihi Fi yawmi lithnayni tulu'a fajrihi ووافق العشرين من نيسانا وقبله حين أبيه حانا The English translation of this, of these three lines His birth was on the 10th of the distinguished month Rabi al-awwal in the year of the elephant However, the common view it was the 12th on a Monday at the break of dawn, corresponding to the 20th of April. Prior to that, his father passed away. So let's take this bit by bit. The poet begins with the mawlid of the Prophet And that is what every book of seerah begins with. Mawliduhu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam When was he born? And he begins by saying Mawliduhu fi aashiri al-fadili That his birthday Or the day that he was born Was the 10th of the virtuous month Rabi'in al-awwal amal fili. It was the tenth of the virtuous month. The tenth day of the virtuous month. Which virtuous month? Rabi'in al-awwal. And the scholars are unanimous in agreeing that the Prophet ﷺ was born in Rabi'in al-awwal. But they differed over the day that he was born. And we're going to come to this in the next line of the poetry. So the first opinion that the poet gives, and this appears to be the poet's opinion, and his preferred opinion, 
is that the Prophet ﷺ was born on the 10th of Rabi' al-Awwal. On the 10th of Rabi' al-Awwal. And we know our Islamic months. The 10th of Rabi' al-Awwal. And then he said, Am al-Fil. We know al-Fil, the elephant is the year about which Allah Azza wa Jal said, Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al-feel. Do you not see how your Lord dealt with the people of the elephant? Alam yaj'al kaydahum fi tadlil. Didn't he make their plot end in ruin? Wa arsala alayhim tayran ababil. And he sent birds to pelt them with stones of clay tarmihim bi hijaratin min sijil faja'alahum ka'asfin ma'kul this gives us two benefits there are two things that we take from this first of all that that dates in history at least for many cultures and in many times were not the the years the the number of the year, the year number was not the primary way of knowing what which year it was it wasn't like it was like okay now we're in 2017 we're going into 2018 they were known by events major events that happened so the year the prophet ﷺ was born was Amalfil, the year of the elephant, and in the year in which this famous story happened of Abraha, when Abraha came with his army of elephants to destroy the Kaaba, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed this plot. And in this, there is actually an interesting story that happened with Abdul Muttalib. Is that along the way, Abraha had taken possession, and he had like, if you like, stolen or taken possession, some of the camels of Abdul Muttalib. And before he reached, before yani Abraha, before Allah Azza wa destroyed him and his army, Abdul Muttalib came to him. And Abraha presumed that he had come to beg for him to leave the Kaaba. Yani. That he had come to plead for him not to attack the Kaaba. And Abdul Muttalib said a very famous statement. He said, the Kaaba has a lord to take care of it, but I'm the lord of these camels. And I came for my camels. I'm the owner of the camels. The Kaaba has an owner that will take care of it. I didn't come to you to beg you for to leave the Kaaba. I came to you to get my camels back. And that shows you that even though he was a mushrik, and even though he died in a state of shirk, and he is from the people of Jahannam, but look at the fact that they, they look at the, the basic 
knowledge that was there about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this benefits you with a couple of things. First of all, it tells you that Tawheed al-Rububiyyah is not enough to make you a Muslim. Because we know that Abdul Muttalib died as a mushrik. Even though he made statements like this. The Kaaba has a Lord who will take care of it. Meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it shows you that simply believing that Allah azza wa jal is your Lord is not enough to make you a Muslim. And simply believing that Allah has the power to protect the Kaaba it does not make you a Muslim. But what makes you a Muslim is dedicating all of your worship to Allah Azza wa Jal alone. And that's not what Abdul Muttalib used to do. So it tells you about the state of the people. That yes, Quraysh were idol worshippers for the most part. And also it's useful to know here that it, this was not universal. And in fact, there were different religious beliefs among the people the Prophet ﷺ was sent to. And this is important because it answers a criticism or it answers a shubha that many people bring where they will say, for example, that these ayat were revealed about a people who worship idols and we don't worship idols. The reality is that Quraysh were a wide range of people. But certainly the majority were involved in worshipping gods besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, usually in the form of, of, uh, of idols. But it also tells you that these people had a basic belief in Allah, in the terms of his lordship that he is, and, uh, and this is mentioned in many places in the Qur'an, مَا نَعْبُدُهُمْ إِلَّا لِيُقَرِّبُونَ إِلَى اللَّهِ زُلْفَةً We only worship them to make us near to Allah in position in any case Allah Azza wa Jal sent this uh, I guess we can call it it's a kind of miracle it's not it's difficult because in Arabic we have different words for different things but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent this miraculous uh, event in which the elephants the army of the elephants were pelted with stones made of clay by by these birds and the uh, plot of Abraha was destroyed. And that year became very famous in, the, in the, uh, the history of the Arabs. Because it was a, for them it was a momentous year. It was a year of victory. It was a year when really they, they should have been destroyed. By all accounts, the army of Abraha was a huge any, army of, of elephants. And it should have by all accounts destroyed the people of Quraysh. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed him. And this became very well known among the Arabs. And so the fact that the Prophet ﷺ was born in this year is something that is easily remembered. You know, maybe it's difficult to remember the year that he was born in uh, the, according to the Gregorian calendar. The year that he was born according to the Gregorian calendar. And according to our calendar that uh, is generally believed to have started uh, around the birth of Isa, uh, even though that's yani, not really probably very accurate. But in any case, yani, this Gregorian calendar that begins, yani, that we are now in 2017, it's hard to remember. And it's hard to be accurate about the year that the Prophet ﷺ was born 
according to this calendar. But it's very easy to remember the Prophet ﷺ was born Am al-Fil. He was born in the year about which Allah said, Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al-Fil. And this was the norm of the Arabs in general. That the Arabs themselves did not have a calendar before the Hijri calendar. And the Arabs as a people did not have a calendar before the Hijri calendar. Rather what they did is they attached things to events that happened in the year. The year of the flood, the year this happened, the year the Kaaba was burnt, the year the elephants came, the year... And they attached things to events that happened. And the Hijri calendar was the first well-established, well-known calendar that the Arabs, or we can say the Muslims really, but it was the first one to be adopted by the Arab people. Then the poet, he says in the next line, but the famous well-known opinion is that he was born on the 12th. Meaning that the most common opinion you hear about the birth of the Prophet ﷺ is that he was born on the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal. The poet said that he was born on the 10th. He says the well-known opinion is that he was born on the 12th. And likewise, there is another opinion that the poet didn't mention, which is that he was born on the 8th of Rabi'ul Awwal. Sheikh Al-Albani has a book called Sahih Al-Seerah, The Authentic Seerah, in which he said, With regard to when the Prophet ﷺ was born, there are a number of different opinions which were mentioned by Ibn Kathir in Al-Bidayah wa Nihaya. All of them are without chains of narration. This is Shaykh al-Albani saying. And Ibn Kathir mentioned a number of different opinions, all of them without asanit. So we don't have a single authentic chain for any of them. Except for the statement of the one who said that it was on the 8th of Rabi' al-Awwal because it was narrated by Malik and others with an authentic chain from Muhammad ibn Jubair ibn Mut'im who is a tabi'i. And the Shaykh he says, and for this reason, perhaps this is the most authentic of the opinions and it is the opinion of the people of history and the one that they preferred. And the majority of people said that it was the 12th and Allah knows best. So there are a number of different opinions. There are even opinions regarding different yani, months. Yani, there are different, yani, there are, but there, yani, you can almost say there is a pretty much an agreement about Rabi' al-Awwal among most. But Shaykh al-Albani said, all of these opinions 
Not a single one of them has a chain of narration except one. And it is narrated from Malik, any Aliman Malik, from Muhammad ibn Jubair ibn Mut'im. Jubair ibn Mut'im radiallahu an is a Sahabi. He had a son called Muhammad. His son Muhammad narrated that it was on the 8th of Rabi' al-Awwal. It was on the 8th of Rabi' al-Awwal. And that's why Sheikh al-Albani said this is the stronger of the opinions because it's the only date that has a firm chain of narration. But you still can't ignore the fact that the well-known date that is accepted by the majority of the scholars of the seerah is the 12th. And this has a benefit for us, an immense benefit for us. And that is that as long as this difference of opinion exists, there cannot be any hukam shara'i related to the birthday of the Prophet Because if there was a hukam shara'i related to the birthday of the Prophet then the date would have to be known for certain. If there were a celebration or prayers or du'as or something to be done on that day, then the date would have to be known. But the Prophet ﷺ did not give importance to the date that he was born. Neither did the Sahaba give importance to the date that he was born. And this is really significant because it tells us that if there was a hukam shari'i, a celebration or there was a festival or there was a prayer or there was something to be done on that day then the date would have been reported in the book of Allah and in the sunnah of the Prophet but since this date has not even been agreed upon by the scholars of seerah that tells us that there is nothing significant about that day in terms of a shara'i action that has to be carried out on that day and we know that nobody celebrated or performed specific acts of worship on the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ until the Fatimiyun, the extreme Shia from the Fatimiyun, uh, around about sort of 400 whatever years, and a long, long time after the Hijrah. Uh, and that these Fatimiyun, they were the first people to instigate the celebration and the specific acts of worship on the birthday of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. As for the evidence that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was born amal fil. Al-Hakim narrates in his Mustadrak from Ibn Abbas that he said the Prophet ﷺ was born Amal Fil. And Al-Hakim said this is a hadith on, this is this is a hadith which is authentic upon the conditions of Al-Bukhari and Muslim, but they did not report it. And Al-Dhahabi said it is correct upon the condition of Muslim. And Ibn Ishaq narrated from 
Qais ni Makhzama that he said, Me and the Prophet وسلم, were born Amal Fil. And Qais ibn Makhzama said, The Prophet وسلم, and I were both born Amal Fil in the year of the elephant. He said, Fanahnu Lidatan Alida is someone born in the same year as you. We share the same yani same birth year. The well known opinion with regard to the or the the, the, the timing between the birth of the Prophet and the uh, the event of the elephant yani The well-known opinion Is that The Prophet ﷺ was born 50 days after The uh, The event of the elephant Or the destruction of the army of the elephants Still continuing to talk about the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. The author says, It was a Monday. At the time of the sun rising. Meaning that his birthday ﷺ was on a Monday. And this is authentic. There is no doubt whatsoever that his birthday was on a Monday. As is in Sahih Muslim from the hadith of Abu Qatada al-Ansari radiallahu anhu, the Messenger sallallahu was asked about fasting on a Monday. And he said, ذَاكَ يَوْمٌ وُلِدْتُ فِيهِ وَيَوْمٌ بُعِثْتُ أَوْ أُنزِلَ عَلَيَّ فِيهِ This is the day on which I was born and this is the day on which I was sent as a prophet, or he said, this is the day on which, in which the Qur'an was revealed to me. I need two virtues for a Monday. One, that was the day the Prophet ﷺ was born, and the second one, that was the day that he became a prophet. Salawatullahi wa And it's also the day that he made hijrah from Makkah to Medina. And it's also the day that he reached Medina. And it's also the day that he died upon Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the author mentions this at each particular point in the, in the poem. It may be said, is this not an evidence for performing an act of worship on the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ. And this is very interesting, and it's interesting as a, an evidence for sometimes how foolish people can be. Because the Prophet ﷺ fasted every Monday. And he fasted every Monday. Fifty something, as the Hijri yani, is different, yani, fifty something weeks in a, a year. Not one Monday in the year. 
So he fasted on a Monday. He didn't fast on his birthday. And he didn't fast on the 10th of Rabi' al-Awwal or on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal or on the 8th of Rabi' al-Awwal. The Prophet ﷺ never fasted on any of those days unless they happened to be a Monday or a Thursday or Rama, yani, or yani, uh, making up some of the fast or whatever or an oath or whatever. But the Prophet ﷺ never singled out any of the days in Rabi' al-Awwal for fasting. Yet he ﷺ used to fast on a Monday and on a Thursday. So there is no evidence for this in singling out a particular day in the year for an act of worship. Rather, a particular day of the week, yes. So if you wish to fast every Monday, there is no issue with fasting every Monday. But if you wish to fast on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal every single year, there is no evidence for doing so. Then we say, let's just, let's just presume for a, a moment that the Prophet ﷺ used to fast on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, for example. What is it the people do on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal these days? Everything but fasting. They don't fast. In fact, they make food and they, they celebrate and they invite people around and they eat and they eat and they eat. And then they say the evidence for us doing this is the Prophet used to fast on a Monday. It's so strange. The Prophet used to fast on a Monday so we eat on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal. I mean, this is the most strange reasoning that you can possibly find. Then the poet, he says, وَوَافَقَ الْعِشْرِينَ مِنْ نَيْسَانَا This was the 20th of Naysan. Naysan is another name for April. Yani Naysan is the fourth month of the solar year. The fourth month of the solar year is called Naysan, and we call it April. As Suhaili uh, said, the people who count the dates, yani the people can, who, who uh, the people of Hisab and the people who know the dates and the years that things happened, say that his birthday was in terms of the solar year in Nisan after 20 days had passed from any yani 20th of April. Then the author goes on after speaking about the day and the month in which the Prophet ﷺ was born and the year to talk about the father of the Prophet ﷺ, Abdullah. And he says, وَقَبْلَهُ Meaning before the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, his father had passed away. The well-known opinion 
in relation to this is that the Prophet ﷺ's father passed away while he was, uh, yani before he was born, yani while he was being carried in his mother's womb. The meaning of the word hain, by the way, in the poem is al-halak, is death. And some of the scholars said that his father passed away after he was born. And some of the scholars of Sirah said his father passed away after he was born. But the correct opinion is that his father passed away before he was born. And this is what Ibn Ishaq mentioned in a Sirah. And he didn't mention anything else after that, Yani. Ibn Ishaq said there is no other opinion worth mentioning. And this tells us that the Prophet ﷺ was born as a yatim, an orphan. And the orphan is the one whose father passes away. And the strongest or the most kind of, if you like, the the, the most prolific or the most significant way that a person can become an orphan is for their father to die before they were born. And that's more serious and significant than for their father to die after they were born. So when the Prophet ﷺ was born, he did not have a father. And Allah Azza wa Jal told us this in the Quran. Alam Did we not find you as an orphan? So Allah Azza wa Jal mentioned that the Prophet was an orphan. Then the, the poet he says, جاءت به مرضعه سليمة حليمة لأمه وعادت به وبه لأهلها كما أرادت. So the English of these two lines is: Two years later, he was weaned and brought back safe and sound by his nurse Halima to his mother. She then returned. With him to her own family as she had desired. The poet he says, after two years, meaning two years after his birth, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ghada Fatima. Fatim is a baby who no longer drinks. Uh, his mother's milk or drinks his wet nurse's milk. Yani a baby who has been weaned. We call them Fatim. And from this is the name Fatima. A Fatim is uh, a baby who has been weaned, yani who no longer drinks milk. Ghada Fatima and Isara Fatima. He became a child that was weaned. He no longer needed to drink 
or he no longer drank milk. And that tells us that the Prophet ﷺ completed the full two years of weaning as Allah advised or as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us in the Quran. Allah said in Surah Al-Baqarah, ayah number 233, that the mothers give milk to their children for two full years for the one who wants to complete the feeding period. So the Prophet ﷺ completed the full two years. So what happened after these two years had been completed? The woman who had been giving him milk, it was not his mother like, like the custom of the Arabs, was to send their children to the Bedouins. And they would take their children and wean their children in the desert so that their children would become strong. And it's well known that living in yani, the natural environment makes a person strong. And living in the cities and the towns makes a person comparatively weak. And so they would send their children, yani, the custom of the Arabs was to send their children to be weaned in the desert with the Bedouins. And this was the case for the Prophet ﷺ. And the woman, Halima, anha, she brought the Prophet ﷺ back after two years to his mother safe and sound. In a state where he was very healthy and he did not have any sickness or any illness. Then the poet, he says, Halimatun, in telling us that the name of the woman who fed the Prophet ﷺ was Halima, bintu Abi Dhu'ayb al-Sa'diyya. And the scholars differed over whether she was a Muslim or not. Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala, takes the opinion that we don't know whether she was a Muslim or not. And he doesn't consider her to be among the Sahaba. He says, we don't know whether she was a Muslim or not. However, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar in Al-Isaba and Ibn Abd al-Barr in Al-Isti'ab and others considered her to be among the Muslims and this is the most famous opinion. And this is the well-known opinion that Halima became a Muslim uh, Sometime during the prophethood of the Prophet ﷺ, she came to him, her and her husband came to him in Medina and they accepted Islam. However, it's a matter of disagreement. When Halima brought the Prophet ﷺ back to his mother, she had hoped or she had intended for him to stay longer with her. The agreement was that she would bring him back after two, after two years. However, Halima wanted the Prophet ﷺ to stay longer. 
because of the barakah that happened to her while the Prophet ﷺ was with her. So when she came to the mother of the Prophet ﷺ, she wanted to convince his mother to let him stay for a longer time. And it's mentioned, although not with a, a strong chain of narration, but it's mentioned generally in the books of history, that she said that the weather, and where Halima was, where the Halima took the Prophet ﷺ to, the weather was better than Makkah, and the, and the environment was better uh, for the Prophet ﷺ, and Makkah was a place of a lot of illness. And it's mentioned that Makkah was a place where people used to get sick. And especially you'd fear for young children getting sick from various illnesses, perhaps from the people who would come to Makkah, because Makkah was a major, not only a major trading town, but also you have the Hajj as well. And until today, Makkah and Medina are cities where you get very easily get sick because of the large number of people that visit them from around the world. They bring all kind of sicknesses with them and so it said that Halima said to the mother of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that Halima said to her that the you know the environment with us is better and there are no sicknesses where we are any people don't get sick like they get sick in Makkah so let him stay with us for longer but her intention behind this was the barakah that she got from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam being with her and she convinced his mother sallallahu alaihi wasallam to allow him to return with her and so he returned back with halima instead of being handed over to his mother after that two years kama aradat as what as she wanted in the first place and the intention of halima in the first place from the beginning was always to for the prophet sallallahu to stay with her longer And there are numerous things narrated regarding the barakah that happened while the Prophet ﷺ was with her. Uh, it's said that she, uh, when she was feeding a number of children, and she, before the Prophet ﷺ came, that she barely had enough milk. And yet, when the Prophet ﷺ, uh, was handed over to her, she had an ample amount of milk to be able to feed. Uh, the children that she needed to feed. It's mentioned that her, the riding beast that they were riding, and all of these different types of barakah that the, the the animals that they milked would have their you know their udders would be would be full of milk, and many many other things that are mentioned uh, from the barakah that happened about of being near the Prophet when he went with Halima radiAllahu anha. Then the poet he says, فَبَعْدَ شَهْرَيْنِ فَبَعْدَ شَهْرَيْنِ شِقَاقُ بَطْنِهِ فَبَعْدَ شَهْرَيْنِ شِقَاقُ بَطْنِهِ وَقِيلَ بَعْدَ أَرْبَعٍ مِنْ سِنِّهِ He said two months after that meaning two years and two months the, the inshiqaq the cutting open of the chest of the Prophet ﷺ happened 
And then the poet says, وَقِيلَ بَعْدَ أَرْبَعٍ مِنْ سِنِّهِ And it's said that it happened when he was four years old. So the next event that the poet is going to talk about is the cleaving of the chest of the Prophet And this either happened two months after his second birthday or his second year, or it happened when he was four years old. And as we're going to hear, it happened more than once. It happened three or four times, as we're going to hear, uh, that the chest of the Prophet ﷺ was opened or carved open by the angels. Uh, and it's said that it happened three times or four times. But the first of those instances was some time after Halima returned him or he went back with Halima radiallahu anha uh, to her people so the first time it is said it was after two months from after returning and it was said that it was after four years Ibn Ishaq narrates from a group of companions from the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that they said O messenger of Allah Tell us about yourself. And he tell us something about you, about your life. That the Prophet ﷺ replied, Naam. He said, Yes, I will tell you something about me. I am the dua of my father Ibrahim. We know this is the that, that Ibrahim made dua, Rabbana wa ba'athfihim Rasulam minhum. O oh Allah, send from them a messenger among them. So the Prophet ﷺ is the dua of Ibrahim. And I am the glad tidings of my brother Isa. And Isa ﷺ gave glad tidings. I give you glad tidings of a messenger. And I give you glad tidings of a messenger that will come after me whose name is Ahmed. A Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He said, وَرَأَتْ أُمِّي حِينَ حَمَلَتْ بِي أَنَّهُ خَرَجَ مِنْهَا نُورٌ أَضَاءَ لَهُ قُصُورُ الشَّامِ وَقُصُورُ الشَّامِ And my mother saw when she became pregnant with me that a light came out of her that lighted up the palaces or lighted up the castles of Syria. He said, And I was given to be fed, and to be weaned, among the people of Bani Sa'ad ibn Bakr. And from whom we said Halima Sa'adiyah, and he from Bani Sa'ad ibn Bakr. The Prophet said, Fabaynama, or he said, Fabayna ana ma'akhin li. He said, While I was with a brother of mine, and he a brother from feeding, and he from uh, breastfeeding. Khalafa. 
buyut, or, or he said, khalfa buyutina, behind our houses. Nara bahman lana, we were looking after some of the sheep or some of the cattle that we had. إِذْ أَتَانِ رَجُلًا عَلَيْهِمَا ثِيَابٌ بِيضٌ When two men came to me wearing white clothing. بِطَسْتٍ مِّن ذَهَبٍ مَمْلُوءٍ And they came with a container made of gold that was full of thalj, it was full of ice. فَأَخَذَانِي فَشَقَّ بَطْنِي Those two men, they took me and they cut open بَطْنِي, yani my stomach. And he meaning from the chest to the stomach. فَشَقَّاهُ فَاسْتَخْرَجَ مِنْهُ عَلَقَةً سَوْدَاءَ فَطَرَحَاهَا so they cut open, they cut me open and they took out a, a black, a, a piece of a black lump and they threw it away. Then they washed my heart and my stomach with this uh, ice or with this cold, yani, uh, with, this, uh, yani, with this ice. Until they cleaned it completely. ثُمَّ قَالَ أَحَدُهُمَا لِصَاحِبِهِ Then one of them said to his companion, weigh him with ten from his nation. Yani compare him to ten of his nation. Compare him to ten men from his nation. The Prophet ﷺ said, فَوَزَنْتُهُمْ I was heavier than those ten. Yani I was more worthy, more worthy than those ten. Then they said, Zinuhu bi mi'atin min ummati. Weigh him against a hundred from his ummah. He said, Fawazanani bihim fawazantuhum. So they weighed me against a hundred people from my ummah and I was heavier than them. Then they said, Weigh him with a thousand men from his ummah. So they weighed me so I overcame and he overcame a thousand men on the scales. Then they said, and he leave this for wallahi if you weighed him against his whole ummah he would have been heavier than all of them ibn kathir said isnaduhu jayyidun qawi the chain of narration for this hadith is strong is good and strong and there is an further evidence supporting it from sahih muslim from anas ibn malik that the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam jibril came to him when he was playing with the boys. So Jibreel took hold of him and made him فَصَرَعَ and he made him pass out. فَشَقَّ عَنْ قَلْبِهِ فَاسْتَخْرَجَ الْقَلْبِ So Jibreel cut out, uh, cut open his chest and took out his heart. And he took a piece out of it. فَقَالَ هَذَا حَظُّ الشَّيْطَانِ مِنْكِ This is the piece of the shaytan, this is shaytan's piece of you. Then he washed it in a container made of gold with the water of Zamzam. Then he returned it to its place. Or then something else is mentioned, then he returned it to its place. 
وجاء الغلمان يسعون إلى أمه Then the, the boys, they ran to his mother. Yani meaning they ran to yani the one who was looking after him. And they said, Muhammad has been killed. So they found him and the color in his face had completely, yani the color in his skin had completely changed. Anna said, I used to see the effect of the uh, the the uh, the mikhyat, yani the effect of the instrument that they used to cut the chest open on his chest, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So what about the other times that the chest of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was cut open? Al Hafidh ibn Hajar mentioned in Fath al Bari that it happened three times. The first is when he was a young boy so that he was able to grow up in the best way and be protected from the shaitan. As is in the hadith, this piece of black, this black lump, this was shaitan's share of you, and it was thrown away. Then it happened when the Prophet ﷺ was sent as a prophet. And that was so that his heart was able to accept the wahi, was able to accept the Qur'an, and was able to hold the Qur'an within it. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us, إِنَّا أَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ وَإِلَيْكَ قَوْلًا قَوْلًا ثَقِيلًا We have sent down upon you a weighty statement. I mean, this Qur'an is heavy. It's narrated that when the Qur'an was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ, if he was upon a camel, the camel would almost collapse from the weight of the ayah. So one of the things that was done to prepare the Prophet ﷺ for this is that his chest was cleaved open again in order to, for his heart to be able to handle the weight of the revelation that was given to him. And then his heart was cleaved open again before Al-Uruj ila sama before Al-Mi'raj, when he was taken up uh, to the heavens in order that he was able to make this journey. It's mentioned in some other books that it happened four times. And that the fourth time was after the first, and it fits between the first and the second. And it was when he was 10 years old, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So it either happened three times or it happened four times. If it happened four times, it happened twice when he was a child, once when he was either two or four years old and once when he was 10 years old. And then the two, that is, yani the two other times that it's agreed are at the time that he was sent as a prophet and at the time that he was taken to the heavens, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And there's no doubt that the effect of this can be seen in the actions of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and in the way that the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, used to be. And that's why Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentions that the Prophet ﷺ used to call to Al-Ihsan 
and as sadaqah and al-ma'roof he used to call to ihsan to being better to others than they would expect you to be and he used to call to give charity and he used to call to do good and he was ashrah al-nasi sadara that he was yani this expression like allah said alam nashrah lak sadrak this sharh al-sadr it's for the chest to be expansive so a person yani to be to have a and one of the effects of this is for a person to be easygoing and to have an, an, a beautiful personality and to call the people to do good. And there's no doubt that in this, the Prophet ﷺ was the best of creation, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, the best of, or certainly the best of, Bani Adam in this regard. And he had the purest heart among all of the people. And then Ibn al-Qayyim mentions a benefit in this. Uh, he says that sadaqah and doing good things have a huge effect upon making a person feel... It's really hard to explain how this expression is. And sharh al-sadr means to feel like your chest is expanded. But the meaning is, you know, when a person is stingy, they feel like their chest is someone is squeezing their chest when a person is worried when a person is harsh when a person has bad characteristics it's like someone is squeezing their chest it's like they feel really miserable and really horrible inside and the opposite of that is to feel that your chest is open and expansive and to feel confident and to feel happy with yourself and to have a good personality and to tell people to do good things and Ibn al-Qayyim talks about the huge role of doing good in making a person feel this way. And then he says that Allah Azza wa Jal selected the Prophet to have this more than anyone else because of the need for this in giving his message and fulfilling the responsibilities of prophethood. And for this reason, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expanded his chest through these, uh, these events that happened when his chest was cut open and took out the piece of the shaitan that was within him and, and it was thrown away. Then the poet goes on to talk about the next event chronologically in the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he says, وَبَعْدَ سِتٍ مَعَ شَهْرٍ جَائِي وَفَاتُ أُمِّهِ عَلَى الْأَبْوَائِي He says, at six years and one month while returning, his mother passed away at Al-Abwa. So the next event in the life of the Prophet ﷺ is the death of his mother. And this happened six years after the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, along with one month, any six years and one month. The Prophet 
had gone with his mother to visit some of her uncles yani uncles on her mother's side who were from Banu Najjar in Medina so the prophet ﷺ had relations in Medina relations who are related through the maternal uncle of his mother through the maternal uncle of his mother and his his mother's mother's brothers and they were from banu and najjar the prophet ﷺ went with his mother to visit No, they were the, they to visit her brother. Sorry, not not her not her paternal uncle, his paternal his maternal uncles, yeah. his maternal uncles from Banu Najjar. His paternal uncles, and when going back from Medina to Mecca, his mother passed away at a place called Al Abwa. Ibn Ishaq, after mentioning the return of the Prophet ﷺ with his mother after, or going back to his mother after Halima radiallahu anha, he said, the Messenger of Allah ﷺ was with his mother Amina bint Wahb and with his grandfather Abdul Muttalib Nihashim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Prophet and caused him to grow up in the best possible way. And when the Prophet reached six years old, his mother passed away, Amina bint Wahb. He said, and Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr ibn Muhammad ibn Amr ibn Hazm narrated that the mother of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, died when he was six years old at a place called Abwa between Mecca and Medina. She had gone to visit his, uh, his maternal uncles from Bani Adi ibn al-Najjar. To allow him to visit them, yani to allow them to see the Prophet and to visit them. So she died upon the return from Makkah. And Imam Ahmad narrates from Buraida ibn al Husayb that he said, I went out with the Prophet until we reached a place called Waddan. We reached a place called Waddan. The Prophet ﷺ said to us, Makanakum hatta atikum. He said, Wait here until I come to you. Fantalak. So he left. He went away from them. Thumma ja'ana wa huwa thaqil. Then he came to us looking troubled. And he, like, he looked thaqil. Yani, like he, literally, he looked heavy. He looked down. He looked like he was down about something. So he said, Inni 
أتيت قبر أم محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم فسألت رب الشفاعة فمنعنيها وإني كنت نهيتكم عن زيارة القبور فزوروها He said I went to the grave of the mother of Muhammad and he, he went to his mother's grave and I asked my Lord to allow me to intercede for her so he forbade me from doing so because as we know the correct opinion and the opinion about which there is no doubt among the scholars of Aqidah is that the mother and the father of the Prophet ﷺ were not Muslim and, he, and they were not they are from the people of the hellfire not from the people of Jannah so the Prophet ﷺ went to the grave of his mother and asked Allah permission to intercede for her and Allah forbade him this permission and then he said indeed I used to forbid you from visiting the graves so visit them in other wordings so visit them for indeed they remind you of death and Imam Muslim narrates from the hadith of Abu Hurairah that the Prophet ﷺ visited the grave of his mother The Prophet ﷺ began to cry and he made the people around him cry. He said, I asked my Lord permission to ask forgiveness for her and he did not give me permission. And I asked permission to be able to visit her grave and he gave permission to me. So visit the graves because they remind you of death. So these are two ahadith and the hadith, second hadith is in Sahih Muslim, which clearly explained that the Prophet's mother did not die in a state of Tawheed, in a state of Islam. She died as a mushrika, as a polytheist, and that the Prophet was not allowed to ask forgiveness for her and was not allowed to intercede for her. And similarly, it's related about the father of the Prophet that a man came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he said, where is my father? The Prophet Sallallahu said, your father is in hell. Then the man walked away. Then the Prophet Sallallahu called him back and he said, my father and your father are in hell. And he added and he, that his father and the father of the person who asked the question. And as for the visiting of the graves, then the visiting of the graves to remind you of death or the visiting of the graves to make dua for the Muslims who have passed away is something mashru' for the men. As for women, then this is a matter uh, about which the scholars differed, but the safer opinion is that the women should not visit the graves because the Prophet ﷺ said, Allah zairatil qubur. May Allah curse the women who visit the graves. And in one narration, Allah zawaratil qubur. May Allah curse the women who frequently visit the graves. But the safer opinion to avoid the curse of Allah 
and to avoid this major sin and to be safe is for the women not to visit the graves under any circumstances. And some of the scholars said the hadith is mansukh by this hadith. Yani the hadith is not, uh, yani the hadith is abrogated. And some of them said it refers to the women who visit the graves and cry there. And yani many other opinions. But the safer opinion and the one that, is, yani that I am most confident with is that the women should not visit the graves under any circumstances. And as for the men, they should visit the graves in order to remind them of death and in order to make dua for the Muslims who have been buried there. Uh, as for making dua to the dead, then this is no doubt an act of shirk, an act of making a partner with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَأَنَّ الْمَسَاجِدَ لِلَّهِ فَلَا تَدِعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا The poet then continues, وَجَدُّهُ لِلْأَبِ عَبْدُ الْمُطَّلِبِ بَعْدَ ثَمَانٍ مَاتَ مِنْ غَيْرِ كَذِبِ وَجَدُّهُ لِلْأَبِ عَبْدُ الْمُطَّلِبِ we read the English as it's translated here. And his paternal grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, passed away while he was eight, no lie. So Abdul Muttalib is the one who took on the looking after the Prophet ﷺ after his mother passed away. And as the poet says, وَجَدُّهُ لِلْأَبْ It was his father's father. Because we know the lineage of the Prophet ﷺ was Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib. And Abdul Muttalib was the father of the father of the Prophet ﷺ, his paternal grandfather. He is the one who looked after him after the death of his mother until he reached eight years old. And when he reached eight years old, when he reached eight years old, he passed away, and the Prophet ﷺ again was left, and we're going to hear what happened after that. There is no doubt that in that two years, between six years old and eight years old, Abdul Muttalib favored the Prophet ﷺ over all of the, yani the, the, the children and the, the people under his care. And that he used to make him sit in his place. And he, he used to make him sit in his majlis. This is very rare for, yani this is like unheard of. You know, Abdul Muttalib is the Sayyid of Quraysh and he is the, 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 the leader of Quraysh effectively. And he one of the with the best lineage and the best uh, yani reputation among all of Quraysh. And he would allow the Prophet ﷺ to sit in his and in his gathering, in his position, even at the age of six or seven or eight years old. And he used to consider that the Prophet ﷺ had a very, very special status. And he used to repeat, often repeat and tell the people the status of this grandson of his, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So eight years after the Prophet, sallallahu was born, Abdul Muttalib passed away. 
And that was two years after the death of his mother, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When the author said, min ghayri kathib, without lying, or no word of a lie, the meaning of this is that this is something which is well known. Yani this is something, the death of Abdul Muttalib when the Prophet was eight years old, is well known and narrated in the books of Sirah without any disagreement in it. Ibn Ishaq said, فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ ثَمَانِيَ سِنِينَ هَلَكَ جَدُّهُ عَبْدُ الْمُطَّلِبِ بْنُ هَاشِمْ He said, when the Prophet ﷺ reached eight years old, his grandfather Abdul Muttalib ibn Hashim died. Then the poet, he said, ثُمَّ أَبُوْ طَالِبِنِ الْعَمُّ كَفَلْ خِدْمَتَهُ ثُمَّ إِلَى الشَّامِ رَحَلْ وَذَاكَ بَعْدَ عَامِ اثْنَيْ أَشَرَ وَكَانَ مِنْ أَمْرِ بَحِيرَ مَشْتَهَرْ ثُمَّ أَبُوْ طَالِبٍ الْعَمُّ كَفَلْ خِدْمَتَهُ ثُمَّ إِلَى الشَّامِ رَحَلْ وَذَاكَ بَعْدَ عَامِ اثْنَيْ عَشَرَ وَكَانَ مِنْ أَمْرِ بَحِيرَ مَشْتَهَرْ So we read the, the, those two lines in English. In the English translation, then his paternal uncle Abu Talib took him on, or took on his guardianship, and later to Asham he traveled. Asham, we said, is the Levant, and in the area of Syria and Palestine. That was when he was 12 years old, and the well known incident with Bahira took place. Bahira the monk. So we now move on through the life of the Prophet ﷺ to who looked after him after his grandfather Abu Talib, his grandfather Abdul Muttalib passed away. And that was his uncle, his paternal uncle Abu Talib. And that is narrated in the books of the seerah that when Abdul Muttalib was dying, he instructed. Abu Talib to look after the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it was not something that Abu Talib just, you know, like, for example, it was not like the incident with Maryam where they drew lots uh, or something like that. Abdul Muttalib commanded or instructed Abu Talib to take care of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that was because Abu Talib was the full brother of Abdullah, the father of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then the other uncles of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, they were not, also, they were not the, uh, or Abu Talib was the full, and he was the full brother of Abdullah. So that was the first reason. Because Al-Akh al-Shaqiq, the full brother, yani the one who has the same father and the same mother, is more deserving than the half-brother of the father. So Abu Talib, being the full brother, was more deserving of taking care of the Prophet ﷺ after Abdul Muttalib. And the second reason is because of the importance of 
and the dedication that Abu Talib had towards the Prophet So he took over the responsibility of looking after the Prophet And in the books of Seerah we find just You can't describe how much Abu Talib cared for the Prophet and how much he helped and supported the Prophet Despite the fact that Abu Talib died in a state of disbelief. And we benefit from this a number of things and we, we haven't got to the death of Abu Talib yet. But we benefit from this a number of things. First of all, we benefit from it that guidance was not in the hands of the Prophet you don't guide who you want, but Allah guides who He wants. This is the first point. How much did Abu Talib do of the Prophet? How much care, how much consideration, how much support, how much sacrifice did Abu Talib make for the Prophet? And yet, the Prophet was not able to bring him into Islam. Because guidance is only in the hands of Allah. Secondly, the hadith, Indeed, Allah will give aid to this religion with the most wicked of people. And subhanAllah, you have somebody who is a disbeliever in Allah. And yet Allah made him such a cause of supporting the religion of Islam. And the third thing is, and this is one of the major things, the danger of society and peer pressure on how a person behaves. Because it's narrated in the poetry of Abu Talib that he said that Islam is the truth. And in the poetry that Abu Talib used to recite, he used to say that Islam is the truth. And he used to say that the religion that my nephew has brought is the truth. But on his deathbed he said, Rather I die upon the religion of Abdul Muttalib out of a fear of what the society would say about him. And we know the well-known hadith that one of the uncles, I think Al-Abbas anhu, said to the Prophet what have you done for your uncle Abu Talib? He helped you, he supported you, and have you, done, has, have you been able to do anything for him? The Prophet mentioned that he is the least of the people in punishment in the hellfire. He's from the people of Jahannam. Abu Talib is from the people of Jahannam. But he is the least in punishment. He is in the fire up to his ankles. And because of this, his brain boils from the heat. And he will believe that he is the worst of the people in punishment when he is the least of the people in punishment. So Abu Talib took care of the Prophet ﷺ and he affirmed the, he, that he believed the Prophet ﷺ was truthful and correct. But what prevented him from becoming a Muslim was the, the pressure of his peers and the society. What will the society say if, you, if Abu Talib leaves the religion of his father? 
Like they said, are you going to leave the religion of your fathers for the religion of your nephew? And in the end he died saying, Rather I die upon, I do not die upon the religion of Islam, I die upon the religion of Abdul Muttalib. Who was there at that time? This is from the strangest of things. The Prophet ﷺ was there with his uncle while he was dying. And he said to him, my uncle, say la ilaha illallah, I will argue your case in front of Allah. And who will say this? The Prophet ﷺ said, I will, I will argue your case in front of Allah. And I will, yeah, I will, in front of Allah, I will tell Allah what you did to defend me, what you did to help me. I will argue for your sake. I will testify for you in front of Allah. Just say la ilaha illallah. On the other side were two men who were saying to him, are you going to leave the religion of your father? Are you going to leave the religion of Abdul Muttalib and take the religion of your nephew? The strangest thing about that event is that one of those two became Muslim. And one of those two people that was convincing Abu Talib to die as a kafir became Muslim. And yet Abu Talib did not become Muslim. Even though the Prophet ﷺ was standing next to him saying, just say la ilaha illallah. He said, my uncle, say la ilaha illallah and I will argue your case before Allah. And that shows you, everything is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn Ishaq said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu after his uncle, after his grandfather Abdul Muttalib was with his uncle Abu Talib because, Abu, because Abdul Muttalib commanded or instructed Abu Talib to do so and because he was the full brother of Abdullah. Their mother was Fatima bint Amr and the mother of Abdullah was Fatima bint Amr. And the mother of Abu Talib was also Fatima bint Amr. And so Abu Talib was the one who took over the care of the Prophet ﷺ. The next event that the poet talks about is the travel to Syria. The Prophet ﷺ, as is mentioned in the books of Sirah, traveled to Syria with his uncle Abu Talib at a young age. The poet here says when he was 12 years old. And this is part of that which indicates the importance of the Prophet ﷺ to his uncle Abu Talib. <clears throat> because generally it would not be customary for someone like Abu Talib to take a 12-year-old on such an important journey with him. But because of what he saw from the barakah of the Prophet ﷺ, he wanted to keep him with him all of the time. And then the poet, he talks about what happened with Bahira al-Rahib, Bahira the monk. And he says, Mashtahar, because this is a famous story. 
This is a famous, a very famous story. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, the Prophet ﷺ went out with his uncle to Syria or to the Levant on business while he was 12 years old. And this, is, this shows the care that his uncle had for him. And because there was no one else that he could trust to leave him with in Makkah. So he and his companions that went out uh, to Syria saw some of the signs of the, yani the miraculous nature of the Prophet ﷺ. That which increased his uncle in care over him. As is narrated in, in Jami' al-Tirmidhi, with a chain, all of its men are reliable. And Ibn Kathir says, the chain in Jami' al-Tirmidhi, all of its men are reliable. That the cloud or the clouds would follow the Prophet ﷺ. And that the trees would bend to cover him in the shade. And that when he would walk, the trees would bend to give him shade. And that Bahira, the monk, said that he would, or gave the glad tidings, that he would be this person of yani, significance. And commanded his uncle to take him back so that the Jews of the Levant didn't see him and didn't do something evil towards him. So what is narrated regarding this trip to, Syria, to the Levant or to Syria is that there were a number of miraculous things that started to happen around the Prophet ﷺ. One thing is that the clouds would follow him and give him shade. The second thing is that the trees would bend over when he would walk past them. And the third thing was meeting Bahira the monk. And it's said that when Bahira saw him, he recognized the signs of prophethood. And he recognized what would happen. And he feared what the Jews of that area would do to the Prophet ﷺ because he was a young child. And remember that Allah tells us that these are a people who had killed the Prophets before. فَفَرِيقًا كَذَّبَتُمْ وَفَرِيقًا تَقْتُلُونَ a group of them you denied and a group of them you killed. So it was known that they had killed the prophets before. So he commanded his uncle, the Prophet's uncle, to take him back to Mecca out of a fear of what would happen to him in the Levant when the Jews saw the signs of prophethood around him. There are various narrations of this story and the scholars differed as to its authenticity but at least the main part of the story is narrated in Jami' al-Tirmidhi from the hadith of Abu Musa al-Ash'ari and al-Tirmidhi said it is hadith on Hassan it's a fair hadith and Ibn Hajar said Isnaduhu qawi. it has a strong chain and al-Hakim and al-Bayhaqi and others said it is authentic and this is something in which the scholars of 
the seer I differ as to its authenticity but generally many of the scholars declared it to be authentic then the poet continues وَسَارَ نَحْوَ الشَّامِ أَشْرَفُ الْوَرَى فِي عَامِ خَمْسَةٍ وَعِشْرِينَ ذْكُرًا لِأُمِّنَا خَدِيجَةٍ مُتَجِّرًا وَعَادَ فِيهِ رَابِحًا مُسْتَبْشِرًا فَكَانَ فِيهِ so now the poet, poet goes on to the 25th year of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and read the poem again in English he says the best of mankind again traveled to the Levant at the age of 25 Remember it as a trader for our mother Khadija. Then he returned that year after a profitable trade, happy. In that year was his marriage to her, and later he consummated his marriage with her. So he now goes on to talk about the 25th year in the life of. The Prophet وسلم, and that is the year of his marriage to Khadija radiallahu anha. This is the second trip that the Prophet وسلم, is narrated as making to the Levant. And this was for the purpose of trade as instructed by Khadija radiallahu anha and this is because Khadija had heard radiallahu anha a great deal of good about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam she heard about the good nature of him and his trustworthiness and she heard about his virtue and his character and she heard about his honor and his truthfulness and the fact that he always fulfilled the responsibilities that were given to him so she wished to trade with some of her wealth and she had some wealth and she wished to invest some of that wealth in a trade and to do some trade some business with that wealth and to get a profit so that she would provide any on the basis that she would provide the wealth and the Prophet ﷺ would carry out the trade. And she would provide the wealth and the Prophet ﷺ would carry out the trade. And until this day, this is a permissible means of uh, doing business in Islam. This is one of the kinds of business which Islam affirmed and confirmed as being valid, which is when one person gives the wealth and the other person does the, uh, any, the actions or does the, carries out the trade and then there is some agreement to share the wealth among them or there is some wage for one of them uh, according to what they agree. 
So Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha, she made uh, an agreement with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that he would take her wealth, the wealth would be given by her, and he would go to Syria and he would, or to the Levant, and he would trade with this wealth and come back. So the Prophet ﷺ traveled towards the Levant once again. And he is Ashraful Wara, the best of mankind, Salawatullahi wa salamuhu And this happened when his age was 25 years old. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said. Then he went out once again to the Levant in order to trade on behalf of Khadija bint Khuwaylid radiallahu anha with Maysara. Yani Maysara was the servant of Khadija radiallahu anha. And Maysara was given the instruction to look at the Prophet وسلم, and how he behaved and how he carried out himself and how trustworthy he was. And so when Maysara came back and told yani, uh, Khadija عنها, what he had seen, Khadija wished to marry the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because of all of the good that she saw that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala had brought about through the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that which could not really be and he imagined or she could not have imagined would have happened so the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam married her when he was 25 years old and she was 40 years old. This is the mashhur, and this is the, the, the well-known opinion that Khadija was 40 years old. There is another opinion mentioned in the books of Sirah that she was 25 years old or around 25 years old. And the mashhur, the famous opinion in the books of the Sirah is that she was 40 years old. Radiallahu ta'ala anha wa ardaha. And Khadija, radiallahu anha, as the poet said, she is our mother. Because as Allah Azza wa Jal said in the Quran, wa azwajuhu ummahatuhum. His wives are their mothers, and yani his wives are the mothers of the believers. And the Prophet وسلم, came back to Khadija Rabihan. And he had made a massive amount of profit on the wealth that she had given him to trade. Mustabshiran, yani masruran, yani he was happy because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had made it a very profitable and a very easy journey for him. He was able to go there without any difficulty. He was able to trade. His trade was very profitable. So he came back 
both happy at what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given him from the ease of making that trade and also with a great amount of profit. And then the poet says, فَكَانَ فِيهِ Meaning in the same year, أَقْدُهُ عَلَيْهَا And he married her, وَبَعْدَهُ إِفْضَاؤُهُ إِلَيْهَا And then he consummated the marriage immediately after that. So he both married her and he consummated the marriage in the same, at the same time in this year when he was 25 years old. Salawatu Rabbi wa salamuhu And we know that Khadija was the first woman that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam married. And we know that he didn't marry anyone along with her. And and Khadija is the only one of his wives that he did not marry anyone along with her. And he did not take a second wife while Khadija was uh, alive, radiallahu ta'ala anha wa ardaha. And she has many, many uh, virtues from that which is narrated from Aisha in Al-Bukhari and Muslim that she said, I was never jealous over any of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, that which I was jealous over Khadija. The word jealous here is al-ghira, not, uh, like not uh, al-hasad. And not like wanting her to fail or wanting her to suffer, but like that kind of yani, natural jealousy. Aisha said, I was never jealous over any of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, that which I was jealous over Khadija. And she said, وَمَا رَأَيْتُهَا She said, and I had never even seen her. And Aisha said, I had never seen her. Because Aisha radiallahu anha was born before the hijrah. Yani she was born around about nine years uh, before the hijrah. Uh, so she had not seen Khadija. And she had not seen Khadija. She said, I had not seen Khadija. But the Prophet Sallallahu he used to always mention her all the time. And sometimes he would sacrifice a sheep and break it up into limbs and he break its limbs up into you know like a shoulder and a leg and whatever then he would send it to the friends of Khadija and that's how much the Prophet ﷺ had the love of Khadija that even after Khadija died he would sacrifice an animal and break it up and he would send Khadija's friends the, the, the meat from the animal Aisha said so perhaps I said to him Aisha said, you're acting as though there is only ever been one woman in the dunya, Khadija. And Aisha became upset. She said, it's as though there has never been any woman in the world except Khadija. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِنَّهَا كَانَتْ وَكَانَتْ وَكَانَ لِي مِنْهَا هَوَلَدْ he said, Khadija was like, he said he would mention to Aisha, Khadija was like this and she was like this. And he would mention so many of her virtues and he would say that I had children from her. 
In some of the narrations, Aisha said, why are you mentioning this old woman when Allah has given you a, a, younger, uh, a, a, a younger wife, a younger and better wife? And the Prophet ﷺ rebuked her for this statement. And he said, Wallah, I've never been given better than Khadija. And then the poet goes on to mention the children of the Prophet ﷺ from Khadija. He says, وَوَلْدُهُ مِنْهَا خَلَى إِبْرَاهِيمِ فَالْأَوَّلُ الْقَاسِمُ حَازَ التَّكْرِيمِ وَزَيْنَبٌ رُقَيَّةٌ وَفَاطِمَةٌ وَأُمُّ كُلْثُومٍ لَهُنَّ خَاتِمَةٌ So again we'll go to the English part of the poem. All of his children were from her except Ibrahim. Because Ibrahim was from Maria radiallahu anha. The first to earn that distinction was Al-Qasim. Then came Zainab Ruqayya Fatima and Umm Kulthum, who was the last of the girls. Then he said, I missed a line. وَالطَّاهِرُ الطَّيِّبُ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ وَقِيلَ كُلِّ اسْمٍ لِفَرْدٍ زَاهِ He says, Then الطاهر الطيب عبد الله But some say that each name belonged to a separate child. And some say that الطاهر and الطيب were names of Abdullah and some say that there were three children, الطاهر and الطيب and Abdullah. And the well-known opinion is that Al-Tahir and Al-Tayyib were names of uh, Abdullah radiallahu So to go back to the, the, the first uh, part of the poetry, the 16th line. Wawulduhu, and his children. Minha, and from Khadija. All of his children were from Khadija, Khala Ibrahim. Because the mother of Ibrahim was Maria or Maria Al-Qiptiya. Radiallahu anha. So all of the children of the Prophet except Ibrahim were from Khadija. Radiallahu anha. The first of them was Al-Qasim. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ's kunya is Abu al-Qasim. And the kunya that he is known by is Abu al-Qasim. And he forbade his companions from taking this kunya. And the scholars differed over whether it is forbidden from taking this kunya for all of the Muslims or only for his companions. And many of them held the opinion that it is only forbidden for his companions. Out of a fear that someone would say, Abu al-Qasim said such and such. And then they would become confused about the sunnah or the sunnah would be misreported. So some of the scholars said for this reason, the Prophet ﷺ forbade his companions from having the kunya Abu al-Qasim. And the kunya is the name, the nickname that you have that begins with Abu. The nickname that you have that begins with Abu. Or um for a woman. So for the Prophet, he was Abu al Qasim. 
And he was the first of the children of the Prophet ﷺ to be born from Khadija radiallahu anha, followed by Zainab and Ruqayya and Fatima, and the last of the daughters of the Prophet ﷺ, who was Ummu Kulthum radiallahu anhunna wa ardahunna. So these are the four daughters of the Prophet wasallam. All four of them reached the age of Islam. Yani all four of them were, were able to become like to, to, yani to, to the, all four of them were alive when the Prophet wasallam declared or pronounced the religion of Islam. And all four of them became Muslim and made hijrah with the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ibn Sa'ad narrates in At-Tabaqat from Ibn Abbas that he says that the first person to be born, the first child to be born to the Prophet Sallallahu in Makkah before prophethood was Al-Qasim. وَبِهِ كَانَ يُكَنَّ This was his kunya. Then Zainab was born, then Ruqayya, then Fatima, then Umm Kulthum. Then in the time of Islam, Abdullah was born. Yani, all of them were born prior to Islam and became, yani, became Muslim. As for Abdullah, Abdullah was born after Islam. So he was given the name At-Tayyib At-Tahir. And all of them were born from Khadija bint Khuwailid radiallahu anha. Umm Kulthum is the youngest or was the youngest of the daughters of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Although the scholars have a difference of opinion about that. And not all of the scholars agree that Umm Kulthum was the smallest or the youngest of the Prophet's daughters. Ibn Abdul Bar said in Al Isti'ab, the disagreement around who the youngest of the daughters of the Messenger of Allah was is a lot. But the difference about who the oldest of them is shudud, yani it's, it's very rare and it's not strong. For the oldest of them was Zainab. So Ibn Abdul Bar is saying there's a lot of disagreement about who the youngest was, but everyone agrees that the oldest was. Or mostly everyone agrees that the oldest was Zainab uh, radiallahu anha. And Ibn Hajar said in Al-Fatih, that which is agreed upon is that the oldest of the children of the Prophet ﷺ is Al-Qasim. And that he died at a young age before the Prophet ﷺ was sent as a prophet or just after? And that he has four daughters, Zainab and then Ruqayya, then Umm Kulthum, then Fatima. And it is said that Umm Kulthum was younger than Fatima. So Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar prefers that Fatima was the youngest and that Umm Kulthum was a little bit older than Fatima. And he said the other way is also reported, which is the choice of the poet. Any the poet chose that the youngest is Umm Kulthum and that Fatima was the second youngest.
But there isn't a lot of disagreement that Zainab was the oldest daughter, radiallahu anha, followed by Ruqayya, uh, radiallahu ta'ala anha, uh, and then either Fatima or Umm Kulthum. Al-Tahir and Al-Tayyib were two names given to Abdullah. And they were not separate children, even though this opinion yani, was, uh, was said. But as the poet said, it's not a strong opinion. Waqila. And it's not a strong opinion that the Prophet ﷺ had Al-Qasim and Al-Tahir and Al-Tayyib. Rather, Al-Tahir and Al-Tayyib were other names for, for, uh, sorry, for Abdullah. Radiallahu anhu. Then the poet he says, وَالْكُلُّ فِي حَيَاتِهِ ذَاقُ الْحِمَامِ وَبَعْدَهُ فَاطِمَةٌ بِنِصْفِ عَامِ The poet he says, All of them tasted death during his lifetime, except Fatima who died half a year after him. And all of his children tasted death. Some of them are those who died before he was sent as a prophet, which is the well-known opinion regarding Al-Qasim, that Al-Qasim died before he was sent as a, as a prophet. And from them are those who died after, and that is Zainab and Ruqayya and and Umm Kulthum and Ibrahim. And Abdullah and Ibrahim. And the only exception was Fatima radiallahu anha and she died after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam by six months, yani six months after the Prophet ﷺ died, Fatima radiallahu anha died. In the Sahihain, in the Bukhari and Muslim, from the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, that Fatima lived after the Messenger of Allah ﷺ for six months. And from in the Sahihain, also from Aisha, is that Fatima came walking. As though her walking was the walking of the Prophet ﷺ. And for those of you who, who might have come across my, uh, my uh, series that I did on one of the TV channels on the, uh, the Shama'il of the Prophet ﷺ, how the Prophet ﷺ used to be, will know that the closest person in resemblance to the Prophet ﷺ was Fatima. And in her characteristics, in the way she walked, the way she carried herself, the way she spoke, she was the closest of the people to the Prophet ﷺ. And especially the way she walked. Aisha said Fatima came walking as though she was walking the same way that the Prophet ﷺ used to walk. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Marhaban bibnati, welcome to my daughter. Then he sat her on his right hand side or on his left hand side. Then he told her something and she cried. 
So I said to her, why are you crying? And Aisha was there at the time. Aisha is narrating the hadith. So the Prophet ﷺ whispered something to Fatima and she began to cry. Aisha said to Fatima, why are you crying? Then the Prophet ﷺ said something secretly to Fatima and she laughed. Then Aisha said to Fatima, Ma ra'aytu kal yawmi farahan aqraba min huzn. I have never seen any day like today for happiness to be so close to sorrow. I've never seen a day where happiness is so close to sorrow. Like the Prophet said something to you, you start crying as though something really bad has happened. Then he says something to you and you start laughing. What, what is this day that happiness and sadness are so close together? Aisha said, so I asked Fatima, what did he say? She said, I will not betray the secret of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Fatima refused to tell Aisha what the Prophet ﷺ said. And this is clear because the Prophet ﷺ could have said what he said aloud and Aisha would have heard. There were only, only, the only people there were Aisha and Fatima. So the Prophet ﷺ could have easily said those words aloud and let Aisha hear. But when he chose to whisper them to Fatima, it showed that he wanted this to remain a secret. So Aisha, in any case, asked Fatima what he said, and Fatima said, I will not betray the secret of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. حَتَّى قُبِضَ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ فَسَأَلْتُهَا Aisha said, قَالَتْ حَتَّى قُبِضَ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ فَسَأَلْتُهَا When the Prophet ﷺ passed away, I asked her again. She said, he said to me, that Jibreel has come to me to go over or usually comes to me to go over the Qur'an one time every year. And this year, he has gone over it with me twice. And I only think the reason for this is because my time has come. And the time for my death has come. And indeed, you will be the first of my family to join me. She said, so she cried. And the Prophet ﷺ said to her, that Jibreel used to go over the Qur'an with me once a year. And this year he's gone over it with me twice. And I believe the reason for this is my time has come. And I'm going to die. And that you will be the first of my family to join me. So she cried. She said, She said, I cried. Then he said, Won't you be happy to be the leader of the people of Jannah, or he said, the leader of the women of the believers in Jannah. She said, so I laughed at this. And Aisha doesn't remember whether he said the female leader of the people of Jannah or the leader of the women believers in Jannah. But the two are the same thing. And he said, Ahl al Jannah, or he said, Sayyidata Nisa al Mu'mineen. The two are the same thing. And the leader of the women, Fatima, is the leader of the women in paradise. We'll stop there, inshaAllah ta'ala. Slightly slower than I wanted to be, but I'm, and we'll get into it, inshaAllah. We'll speed up. We reached line number 20. 
And inshallah ta'ala we'll have to speed a little bit up But that's not too difficult inshallah We have to speed a little bit up inshallah So that we can Finish the poem A uh, couple of announcements Announcement number one Please check the home assignment Which is on the Kalima website Go to the module 3 page Which is kalima.org module 3 kalima.org forward slash module 3 Click on resources Go down to last week's class And there is a home assignment link We'll put it also We'll try and put it on the main page as well So it's, it's more obvious for you to see The home assignment is to memorize As much of the poem as you are able Before the first week in January Really you'll benefit from it a lot Wallah. You'll benefit from it a lot I'm not going to say That you have to memorize the whole poem To get the credits but also my experience is if you don't memorize the whole poem now, this idea that I'll finish it off in February or I'll finish it off in March, it usually doesn't happen. That's my own personal experience from myself. Is we have like a daura where the sheikh says memorize the poem and like I start memorizing and I say, okay, sheikh said if we memorize half, he'll give us the certificate. So I memorize half and then that other half never gets memorized. So try to memorize the whole thing as much as you can. Memorize it in Arabic Wallahi, will, it will stay with you forever You won't forget the names of the children of the Prophet You won't forget their years You won't forget the ages you won't, Because everything will be with you And you'll have the whole seerah as like a, a chronological story in, in poem form And it's only a hundred lines So you'd have to memorize around about three uh, lines every day Perhaps you could get away with a little bit less than that. You could even get away with two lines a day. Which is, I mean, it's, it's not easy if Arabic's not, your, you know, you're not fluent in Arabic, but it's, you, it's doable, inshallah. And you'll benefit immensely from it, and you'll benefit from it anyways in your exam and everything for knowing the dates and knowing the things in the poem. It'll be a great benefit for you, inshallah. I'm not doing it to make it hard for you. I'm doing it because, inshallah, you'll see the benefit that that will have. Sometime in January... I can't say exactly when, but sometime in January, before we start the next essentials term, or maybe the first week we start the next essentials term, we will give appointments for people who want to, who, who, I mean, you don't have to, but people who say, I want to I read the poem, and I want to like, get my marks, my credits, uh, then inshallah, we'll give you an appointment to come and to read as much of the poem as you're able. Focus on quality, not quantity. Okay, I'm not memorizing a hundred lines with like loads of mistakes. It doesn't interest me compared to memorizing 20 lines with like it can't like really, really well. It's better for you, inshallah. And bear in mind is, you know, these things make up like these credits are there. They're not there as part of the main course. They're there to make up for anything that you might have missed. You might have missed an exam. You might have missed some marks. You might have got a low grade in something. I mean, these will make up for it, inshallah ta'ala. So this is the home assignment for this term To memorize as much of the poem in Arabic as possible I've provided you an audio of the poem being read Much better than mine Please don't take it from mine Because uh, my yani, poetic reading is not as good as it should be So don't take it from my audio But take it from the audio I've given you an audio of someone reading it nice and clearly uh, and I've given you the text of it in Arabic on that page And I've given you the translation of it in English as well To help you to link the Arabic words to the English words And, and get it in your memory 
So I would suggest that you just set yourself even two a day. And we can agree on this, I'll give you at least 50 days to do it. And in other words, I'm not even going to ask you to do more than two lines of poetry every day. That's it. And inshallah, you'll be able to finish the, the poem or as much of it as you're able to do. If your memory is not very good, and even if you memorize 10 lines or 20 lines, if I see that you worked hard, I'll give you the credits. If I can see you've tried really hard and you've worked really hard, I'll give you the credits even if you've only memorized 25 lines. But if I see somebody who's come and is like not even bothered and they've just memorized on the last day, they're not going to get the full credits. Yet. But if I see people making an effort and trying hard, even if they don't reach to 100 lines, I still give them all of the credits, inshallah ta'ala. So that is the plan for the home assignment. The other thing is that, as you know, next week is a public holiday. Generally, I mean, we're in the time of the public holiday. I mean, be like, I don't know what it would be, Thursday, Friday, whatever, Saturday, but around that time. I mean. So we're not sure whether there will be a class or not. Um, we have to discuss it with the Kalima guys and come back to you. So please, before you come to the class, any of the classes on my Wednesday class will be normal. Before you come to any classes on yani, this Thursday, Friday, Saturday, please check the Kelima, yani, Facebook, website, whatever, to make sure that you, the class is actually on. It could be the class is on like normal, or it could be some of the classes are cancelled and some of them are on as normal. We have to sit down with the guys at Kelima and decide. They hadn't decided when I asked them this morning. So We will let you know by text, we will let you know by email, we will let you know, inshallah, uh, by the Kelima's Facebook account but please guys if you can try to check before you come because there is a chance there will not be a class next week depending on what we decide with regard to uh, the holiday that is upcoming and Allah Azza wa knows best